This program is supported by an educational grant from Sun Pharma Canada, Inc., made available through the CDA Corporate Supporter Program. Hi, welcome to Dermalogue Season 2. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Purdy. I'm a dermatologist who works in Halifax, part-time community and part-time academic. As residents, you don't always get a chance to hear from dermatologists outside your own centre. This podcast is designed to change some of that. The goal of the series is to help you, the dermatology residents, get answers from expert dermatologists across the country to some of your burning questions on key areas of our practice. One of those experts who's joining us on this episode is Dr. Phil Doiron. He's the Program Director for Dermatology at the University of Toronto, and he's a staff dermatologist at Women's College. He's a clinical teacher, and he spends a ton of time teaching medical students, residents from a variety of programs, including dermatology and beyond. So first and foremost, Thank you so much, Phil, for joining me on this episode. Hello, you're welcome. Today we're going to be discussing the, I was going to say burning topic of male genital dermatology, but Mm, (laughs) maybe we don't want to use that qualifier. So we'll talk about male genital dermatology. Mm -hmm. I have to say, you know, being a resident um, in Halifax, I had a fair number of staff dermatologists who were males. Uh, so I did get a chance to see a fair amount of things, but I, I will note that many times patients felt uncomfortable with an opposite gendered learner coming in. And so most of my learning around male genital dermatology as a resident seemed to be from books. And then now as a staff person seeing stuff because the patients don't necessarily have an option. So, um, I think it's a really important topic that maybe not all of the residents are getting equal experience with. Do you think that's fair? I think that's very fair and very much happens. Um, I think it definitely happens for trainees that there is a bit of perhaps gender bias where patients do feel more comfortable um, with a trainee of their same gender. And I think it actually does happen even a bit as staff, perhaps um, depends on where you work. If there are other physicians at your center, I work in a center with um some female dermatologists so that sort of self-selects out so I feel like it that does definitely happen for people yeah that's a fair point actually my office has two females two males and I find that oftentimes patients do self-select but Mm -hmm. uh, I will also find that or I do also find that I've seen a lot more um, male genital dermatology since being a staff and a lot of it, I was kind of like, whoa, <laughs> I don't really know what to do with this. So yeah, I think this is going to be, be very sure, helpful. Yeah. The biggest comment I get from residents is it is an area that we just get so little exposure to. I, I totally agree. And the one thing that I thought was of interest too was the urology residents here do um, different topics. And I was the advisor to review the, the dermatology chapter. Um, mm. And it was one of those interesting things where I thought, you know, there's not a lot of great resources in this topic. Um, and the way that they had their setup was kind of not that easy to understand. And so I started thinking about the way that we have our resources set up. And, you know, do you have any resources that you think are particularly useful for the male genital dermatology topics? Mm, yeah, there's one textbook um, written by uh, Christopher Bunker uh, from England, okay. which is kind of the... Um, I can say seminal textbook on male genital dermatology, uh, which I think it's in its second or third edition now. And it is a very comprehensive volume. So if you really wanted sort of a comprehensive volume, that is that is the one I would look to. Okay. Um, it's a whole textbook. So if someone is looking for a quicker review, I'm actually unfortunately unaware of, a, of any, apart from a few PowerPoints that I've come across, hmm. of any um, 
shorter collection. I will suggest we do not look to the gold standard urology textbook because it's totally all over the place. But um, okay. so listen, before we start delving into some specific topics, let's take a question from a dermatology resident. headquarters of the Dermalogs podcast. This is Malika Ladla at the University of Calgary Residency Program. My question is about the general approach to a male genital examination. Do you wear gloves? And do you ask the patient to hold and manipulate their genital area? Or do you do it yourself? Absolutely. Uh, I always find it most helpful to have the patient laying down. A lot of patients will want to stand and sort of just pull their pants down. Yeah. And I, I find it a much easier exam and I'm in a much more comfortable position if they're lying down and I'm sort of standing next to them on the bed. I do always wear gloves. Um, I depends on the exam and what I, what I need to look at or if any palpation is required. But um, I will often get them to move their own genitalia. But then if I need to, I will, with gloved hands, you know, palpate as necessary. I do always really emphasize with the trainees how important it is to respect patients' privacy always, mm -hmm. and really especially always during genital exams. Patients can be cavalier if they're comfortable, and I, I do appreciate that. And I have some patients that I've now seen for quite some time that are quite flippant and, and, and you know, are a very, uh, <laughs> it's a very casual experience, shall we say. Yes. But with new patients, I always make a point of pulling a curtain. And often patients will frankly, and again, this is perhaps biased because I'm a male provider and the patient is male, but, you know, I get a lot of variations of, well, you're going to all see it all in a second anyway, so what's the point? Or don't bother, I don't care. Right. No one, you know, people, I always offer a gown. It is rarely used, but I always offer it at least. And I do always pull a curtain and I don't watch someone on disrobe. And I think that's important to do to respect people's privacy. A hundred percent. Now, when you're doing a genital exam, do you routinely include, I guess it would depend on the pathology, but would you routinely include ensuring that you look at all the scrotal area into the perineum and perianal skin, or does it kind of depend on the diagnostic considerations? It depends, but I usually do try to take a look at least the inguinal folds and depending on the perianal area, I also tend to do a focused physical exam, again, depending on what condition I think it might be, you know, for like psoriasis and lichen planus, for example, right. that can be a helpful focused physical, but it will depend on what the pathology shows. Okay. And the other thing I guess um, would be, you know, sometimes people will come in for a particular lesion and then, um, I, I don't know if this is my bias as a female, but I always have to try to remember to, to have uncircumcised males like pull back the foreskin yes. because I, I feel like it's important to always look at that area. Is that true? It is. I, I know I, again, we always think of the worst case examples, but I have a couple, I have this one example that I use in my talks of a man I met uh, during my fellowship who I have a photograph of him uh, that I use with his consent of him with his foreskin forward. Yeah. Uh, and it looks perfectly normal. And then uh, he pulls his foreskin back and he has a very prominent squamous cell carcinoma on the glands of his penis. And I use that to emphasize the point of, just as you were saying, it is really important uh, to always do a complete physical exam. I know it takes more time. It can be uncomfortable, but I do often, especially with genital concerns, have people um, have people that pull back their own foreskin or pull it back yourself. Yeah, you don't want to miss anything there because I find some of the, like you said, malignant lesions in particular tend to hide in that area sometimes. So if you're not looking for it, Absolutely. you're not going to find it. Yeah. Um, so this seems like maybe a broad catch-all question, but if you're looking at genital skin, do you use the traditional vindicate mm -hmm. type? How do you classify lesions or do you have some sort of big heavy hitters in your brain when you're looking? I do. At this point, I do try to go with a gestalt as to what I think it may be based on the patient's history and what I, my first impression is 
impression is uh, looking at it. But, you know, I do tend to follow a broad, you know, infectious, inflammatory, malignant, pre-malignant. Uh, so some variation of, yes, vindicate or some uh, something like that. If I'm trying to be, you know, very thorough and making sure I'm not forgetting anything. Okay. Now, thinking about that, um, hmm. you know, one of the things that I think probably most people panic about or they really don't want to miss are malignant or pre-malignant conditions. And, you know, I, mm -hmm. I remember memorizing all of the erythroplasia and blah, blah, blah. Yes. Um, and then I think I've seen a lot more Zunes, balanitis, and maybe some sort mm -hmm. of this, you know, in the older gentleman um, or things that you look at and think, is that balanitis erotica? Mm. Is it precancerous? Is it cancerous? And I know that I'm mixing mm -hmm. up inflammatory and malignant in my uh, mm. diagnoses, but... It can be hard to tell sometimes. Do you ever look at something and say, hmm, I'm going to treat that on spec, and if it doesn't get better, then I'll biopsy? Or if you have that tiny snifter right at the beginning, do you always go straight for a biopsy? Um, I definitely do treat things on spec if I think they're inflammatory. Mm -hmm. If I have... I guess it depends on how much your clinical comfort level is. If I'm concerned something is a carcinoma in situ or a squamous cell carcinoma, I'm probably going to biopsy it right then and there. Yeah. But if I'm reasonably, if I suspect it, but I, I actually think it's probably an inflammatory dermatosis, then I definitely have, will treat on spec. If I, you know, make sure the patient's reliable, they'll come back, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I will do that. Okay. And do you tend to use, do you tend to go with sort of ultra potent topical steroids in the general area for query inflammatory things or would that also vary it varies based on the inflammatory condition okay. uh, for lichen sclerosis i will use ultrapotent like clobetazole for a short period of time okay. one month maximum i make sure to give a small you know trade size with no repeats on it okay. um and that is probably the only condition i'll use that for for most other inflammatory genital conditions i will try to get away with medium uh, sorry low potency okay. and then maybe medium potency for again short periods of time okay now, speaking of biopsy, this is something that when I see a patient in my community office, I always bring it into the hospital to do a biopsy because I think it's mm -hmm. of utmost importance to have an extra set of hands, you know, beyond just yes. the patients. But um, Essential. <laughs> some of the residents did have questions about the logistics of a biopsy. So let's listen to another question from one of the dermatology residents. Hi, Dermalogs. This is Erin Westby. I'm a third-year dermatology resident at Dalhousie University. My question is about doing a penile biopsy, particularly along the shaft of the penis or close to the meatus. Are there any specific considerations or risks that should be discussed with the patient prior to the procedure, aside from the general risk of scar, bleeding, and infection? Thank you. Uh, it is definitely classic scar, ble scar bleeding infection with a few Asterisks, I always add, um, depending on where you biopsy, the scar can be more prominent. Right. And depending on where you're biopsying, the risk of bleeding can be much higher. Uh, and again, depending on where you're biopsying, uh, the risk of, um, of creating a fistula in the urethra uh, right. is, which is probably that when I say there's, you know, a danger zone, that's the one area on the penis I won't biopsy is the perifrenular area. Okay. Uh, and we can talk about that. And would you send that here. typically to a urologist? To urology, yeah. What they'll Ur often okay. do is put a foley in and then yeah. ensure that they're biopsying um, and not transecting the urethra because I gather from my urology colleagues it is exceptionally difficult to repair. Yeah, they probably don't like that too much. No, so it's best no to have... No one it's one of those things where if they're going to make a mistake, it better be them rather than us exactly. probably. yes. Okay. Do you have any technical pearls or do you have any... Like I said, I like an extra set of hands, mm. but do you have... It, it is a... It is a relatively um 
relatively challenging area, I find a biopsy. So do you have any pearls? What do you do that makes it easier for you? I do. Um, I always have an extra set of hands because it is a mobile area and definitely, you know, you need to have the tissue staying in one place. Um, I will use um, lidocaine with epinephrine and I'll use a very small amount, like 0.1 or 0.2 cc's. That's it. And what I do is like the scalp or other very vascular areas, I will put that 0.1 or 0.2 cc's of freezing in and let that sit for 15 or 20 minutes to let the epi really work. And it Mm -hmm. saves you so much agony later on. Um, It also lets the patient freeze very well too, which is nice. Um, I know some colleagues do use topical things like Emla before. I don't. I find most people are are kind of okay with a with a small um, with a small you know amount of pain for a moment, and then and then it's numb. Yeah, Uh, that's my that's the freezing tip. In terms of what to what type of biopsy I do, I will do a punch. But if I am using a punch, I will tell people to go shallow. We're not trying to get corpus cavernosum here. We just want the skin. Uh, So there's no need to go to the hilt of the punch. In fact, please don't. Some people I know also will do a snip biopsy. So they'll take the forceps and just lift a little bit of the skin up and then kind of do a shave. That is a technique that lets you get away with using aluminum chloride for hemostasis instead of a suture, but you really have to be careful that you're not pulling up too far because then you may get some deeper structures that you didn't intend to. Fair enough. And Mm. then would you typically for hemostasis, do you tend to use a suture or do you use one of the chemical... It depends. For a small punch, I will often use a single uh, 3-0, sorry, a single 4-0 or 5-0 absorbable suture. Uh, Nylon is incredibly uncomfortable, especially under someone's foreskin if you're biopsying in that area. Um, It's very, very unforgiving and prickly. (laughs) So um, I I, I always use absorbable sutures. I would say in terms of location for a biopsy, if you have a choice in location, if someone is uncircumcised, the inside of the foreskin is very forgiving in terms of scarring um, right. and elasticity. Uh, the glands is not. The glands will leave a much more prominent mark if you can avoid it. Uh, and the one area that I said I, I will not biopsy is the perifrenular area or kind of the inside of, of the, the ventral foreskin because the urethra is quite superficial there. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and I can't stress enough for the residents to give that time to allow the um, to allow the epinephrine component to work. I always do that for scalps and yes. lips and noses and genitals, and mm-hmm. it just makes a world of difference Absolutely. if you can do it. Yes. Night and day. Um, the other thing I, I wondered about, too, is, you know, just in terms of dispigmentation. And I don't know that we'd see it so much with a biopsy, but do you have a lot of issues with dispigmentation after, say, like, cryotherapy to the genital skin or do you have a different technique um, if you're doing cryotherapy to that area? Um, I have not seen thankfully a great amount of dispigmentation uh, in patients that I've seen back myself. I have seen quite severe dispigmentation in people that have had uh, cryotherapy other places and I Mm -hmm. do think it has to do with the, the level of aggression. I tend to be it's hard to quantify. I don't, you know, count, but I, I freeze the lesion, hold it for a few seconds, like keep it frozen for a few seconds and go from there. Um, yeah. You know, if we're talking about, let's say, benign condyloma or genital warts, um, yeah. I think some people really blast them quite hard and that can leave uh, a pretty prominent ring of hyperpigmentation afterwards. Now, I should ask, are there any other diagnostic techniques that you'd use? You, you're going to be able to tell me there are, I, right? Yeah, I'm, I am. Okay. Yes. Let, let me hear I it because I'm the, not uh, using them. <laughs> I think the old adage of if it is scaly, scrape it. And if there's an erosion, swab it. It really applies to genital skin. Excellent I, points. I am, I am uh, you know, 
apparently an expert in this and I've been fooled by herpes a few times already. Okay. More, more in the perianal area than the, the genital area. But I think it is, it really is, you know, if, if there is an erosion or a sore there, even if it's not a classic cluster or there's not classically symptomatic, swab it for virus. And if it's scaly, you know, just take a little scraping and see if it's tinea. Great point. And you know, uh, and the other key point that I'll make is to ensure that you use a viral swab. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know if this is as much of a problem for the derms, but I know I've gotten away from just asking um, nursing staff to just do a viral swab without me indicating exactly which swab it is, because I find it's often they pull out the bacterial swab and then it gets turfed or, you know, it obviously doesn't grow a virus or can't get a virus. Um, So on that note, I think it's a good segue into talking about the infectious or some key infectious diseases mm-hmm. of the male genitals. Yep. And so, um, you know, we just saw some news recently that there's like a huge blip in like syphilis. And mm. so have you On the rise. been see? and I, I, by huge blip, I think there was like 85 cases in Nova Scotia since like 2014. Mm-hmm. So we're not, you know, it's not a, not an epidemic, but, um, uh, have you seen much or do, do you see much syphilis at your center? I do. Um, the risk, uh, the rates are certainly increasing. I think, uh, I guess, thankfully, the rates used to be very, very low. So the relative rates are dramatically high. I think the absolute rates are, you're right, not astronomical. But I think in all population groups, or at least, you know, many different population groups, uh, syphilis and other STIs are unfortunately all on the rise. I see, honestly, far more secondary syphilis than I do primary. I huh. like to think that I think... Um, uh, you know, I work in downtown Toronto, so there are a lot of STI clinics near and around us, and the family physicians that work in our area, I think, are pretty versed in that area. So I, I like to think that most primary shankers get caught by primary yes. care. Um, I get okay. a lot more of the scaly rash. What is this? Can I see your palms? <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, clearly, that's more of a zebra when you're looking at infectious diseases of the general area. Yeah. You mentioned herpes earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you're thinking about all the different infectious diseases that you would see, what do you think are the top three that we should always have in mind when we're looking hmm. um, at the genital area? Interesting. And I question. guess obviously it would be it would differ depending on the clinical appearance, yeah. but just sort of like what are the big what are the common things that are always coming through the door? I mean, in terms of infectious diseases, I mean, condyloma, genital warts, HPV are by far the most common, like lion's share for sure. Um, right. After that, I think I mean tinea and herpes are probably the two most common. I see. In terms of genital warts, mm-hmm. I have a couple questions about that. Mm-hmm. First off, do you tend to, and again, you know, I'm sure it depends on the extent, size, etc. Mm-hmm. but do you tend to lean towards more destructive therapies, cryotherapy, pedophilin, et cetera, or do you tend to use more of the topical and um type of what would you are you kind of like mm. i guess it depends but yeah i do you have a preference i tend to use both honestly and i think there's there are uh, there are some studies that show that a uh, combined approach is more successful genital warts are really hard to treat in everyone especially the immunocompromised as we all know um mm-hmm. but a dually pronged approach is is generally the most successful so i will try to do cryotherapy and a topical destructive or immunomodulator that a patient can use at home between okay. office treatments now, I one time um, a few years ago gave a gentleman imiquimod 5% with the sort of use it once a day, up to eight weeks, sent him on his way. Mm-hmm. Um, he took that very literally mm. and used it the entire eight weeks despite gigantic mm. fillet. And yes. then it all eroded. Oh. And then he had horrible dispigmentation. And it took two years to get it under control. And I felt terrible. And then I thought to myself, 
perhaps I should have been a little bit more clear mm. in my direction. Mm -hmm. When you give someone an ikoma to use in the general area, do you give them, okay, here's your endpoint type of thing? Or I do. I I I'm I'm I have my sort of little spiels that I give for these things, and I, I do have one for a mikomad that is, it will get red, angry, swollen, sore, and we want a little bit of that because it's a sign that it's it's working. If it right. is too angry, too sore, too painful, just take a break for a couple days and then mm -hmm. jump back on board is verbatim what I say to people every day. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> now I should have taken my own advice. That's how I talk to them about their actin and keratosis yeah, on the I, face. Yeah, it's the but, exact uh, same. Yeah. I, I kind of was, uh, <laughs> you know, I will admit not not as many men will tolerate that intensity that this yes, gentleman I'm, must have gone I'm through. And I thought, that's oh very, my wow. God. Yeah, he, he was just, he just thought that's what he had to do. I will say those warts were Gone. obliterated. They never came back. Uh, <laughs> I will say, actually, I'll add one other little tip I have is that if yeah, a yeah. man is using a Miquamod or Effudex for benign warts, precancerous lesions on the genitals, um, the scrotum is very sensitive. And if there is no pathology you're treating on the scrotum, I tell people to either cover their scrotum, cover their scrotum in Vaseline uh, or put gauze on it because often if they're mm -hmm. applying something to their penis and then they go to bed and their penis rests on their scrotum, it can be very, very uh, angry in the morning. Pretty sure that may have been what contributed to my, my patient's uh, there you go. issues. But uh, yeah, excellent point. Mm. Um, now, uh, uh, one, one more question on the topic of HPV, and I suspect you get asked this, but you mm -hmm. know, typically when it's, when it's something that I diagnose, genital warts, whatever, mm -hmm. the questions are always like, where did I get this? Mm -hmm. How can I pass it on? How can I not pass it on? Mm -hmm. um, do condoms protect? And so how do you answer those questions? Yeah, it is tricky. And it is definitely a conversation. I very much try to avoid the assigning blame game. I tell people that, you know, I first try to normalize it, um, that HPV, the virus that causes warts, is incredibly common. Over 80 to 90% of the sexually active Canadian population will be exposed to it. Um, and so it's very common in that way. Um, I rarely i think maybe mercifully have gotten into really detailed discussions with people who are really fixated on who they got it from most people right. are happy with that oh it could have been anyone over the past couple of years and that kind of you know mm -hmm. is enough um i do tell people that it is possible even after the warts are gone to transmit the virus we don't know if it is completely okay. cleared or if some remains uh, and that condoms are partially protective and they protect the places they cover and nowhere else Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, that's what I've said too. So glad I'm aligned with that message. Uh, last, uh, last infectious question before we move on. And I think, you know, it pertains to the idea that you said sort of tinea is a common thing. And I think we do see a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, red slightly scaly. And I, I always find in general area scales a little bit different. It's not that sort of yeah. prominent, you know, like clearly it's a scaly. Do you tend mm -hmm. to use more in terms of topical treatment or use systemic treatment if you do uh, prove that there's a, a fungal infection um, in the genital area? Uh, usually I definitely will try topicals and that's been overwhelmingly successful, Okay, I would say. Okay. So thinking about all these infectious things that you see and you do see relatively commonly um, and, and recognizing that many of these things often do, at least to me, come if they're not sort of typical, they come from an STI clinic, but what, when you see a patient prompts you to consider doing a full STI workup, do you think everyone deserves one or do you think it depends on the clinical scenario? Uh, I do think if you have one STI, you're obviously at risk of having another. I don't um, personally do a lot of STI testing apart from swabs and a visual exam, but I will put in my note back to their family doctor and I will tell them that they should have a screen for the other STIs. Okay. 
If I'm clinically concerned about syphilis or HIV, then I will do those blood tests. And that was my question too, thinking, I guess, thinking about HIV. And so, you know, I've been doing a lot of hep C, hep B, HIV screening in the context of other therapeutic options that we Mm -hmm. use, but I don't always, I definitely don't always think about it just if I see somebody with a genital, common genital um, infection. I just kind of say, ah, well. Yeah, I think the same, you know, in terms of pre-screening for immunosuppression, I always do HIV testing regardless of any you know, potential risk factors of the patient. Uh, but in terms of if I see them with, you know, genital warts being the most common, I, I will admit I don't test all those people for HIV, but I recommend that their family doctor does. Okay, fair enough. So I'm going to shift gears over to the sort of more inflammatory side sure. of things. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things that possibly not having a great resource or seeing as many patients that does our learners a disservice and it probably the same goes for, for male learners, maybe not seeing as many vulvar yeah, I think it does. Uh, diseases, yeah. but I feel like not seeing the common. So like I see so much psoriasis on the general area now, because I always look and ask about the general area when I'm doing psoriasis mm. that I've realized that it can look different. I don't always catch it. I, I didn't sort of have a good sense of exactly how it would look. Cause it's not the same as on elbows or knees. Mm. Um, I'm not really asking a question here other than just making a comment about my own experience. No, I think but... it's really important to talk about genital psoriasis and that, you know, such a, a third of patients with psoriasis will have genital involvement and about, they mm-hmm. say anywhere from three to 5% of people who have psoriasis will only have genital psoriasis. And I see a few people every year tends to be men who, you know, have yeah. only genital psoriasis. And I have, a, um, you know, one patient I saw had had several biopsies for query carcinoma in situ for these scaly plaques on his genitals that were psoriasis that kept moving around. I think it's wonderful that his physician was proactive enough to do those biopsies and be concerned, but, but, you know. Maybe didn't require those. What other common inflammatory conditions, again, thinking about the top ones, you know, what do you tend to see most or be referred to most for genital area. Yeah, I think, I mean, again, common things being common, absolutely. Uh, dermatitis, often allergic contact dermatitis, mm-hmm. irritant mm-hmm. contact dermatitis under the foreskin, uh, and psoriasis are the most common things I see. I think, again, I probably am in a bit of a biased position uh, in that I do get most of the inflammatory dermatoses that come to my center, but lichen sclerosis, right. lichen planus, Zunz balanitis are the other, probably mm-hmm. the second tier of of common inflammatory infections and very rare things would be like fixed drug eruption and sarcoid and things like that. Right. Yes. Never forget about those. Mm. So so just thinking about psoriasis, you know, when you see a patient that maybe has whatever type of psoriasis, how do you tend to ask? I always say, you know, anything in the general area, the crack of your bum, um, how do you ask patients about whether they have, Mm. you know, eczema, psoriasis, whatever in the general area, if that's not what they're specifically referred to, like, how do you bring it up? Like if I have someone that has psoriasis, I will sort of try to normalize it in part of their list of, yeah, anything on your scalp, anything on your elbows, anything on your bum, anything on the genitals. Um, Are you asking? You just kind of throw it in there the same way. Yeah, absolutely. I make it any other part of your body. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I, because I always say, you know, scalp, ears, elbows, knees, genital, you know, belly button, genitals, blah, blah, blah. I just wonder if you had some other better way of asking. Um, No special technique. And and how many people do you find? Because I find this happens to me a lot. They're like, I do have something. Yes, absolutely. I thought it was something bad. And then you, you reassure them it's psoriasis and you treat it. Yep. Um, If you see somebody that has something that you do believe to be inflammatory, you give them that, you know, treatment on spec. How long will you accept before you say, no, time for a biopsy, that's not acting the way it's supposed to? 
Um, I usually see people back after about six weeks. I'll give them a month of treatment. If okay. let's say I'm thinking about lichen sclerosis, for example. Right. Uh, I will give people a month of treatment. I'll see them back and I try to explain to use it for a month and then stop. And I want to see you two or four weeks after that to see if it's coming okay. back or, or, you know, flaring up again. Um, right. That sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Uh, but then if things have ex- responded the way I expected them to, then I may continue with treatment. If they haven't, then I would consider a biopsy at that point. Again, okay. biopsy is often for me guided by physical exam and mm-hmm. the way the lesion looks and feels is, you know, is, is where I would be concerned about, you know, frankly, we're talking about carcinoma in situ and squamous cell carcinoma being the, you know, over 97% yeah. of male genital skin cancers are squamous cell carcinomas. How many people do you think, so I'll shift into the malignant side of things also, just like, you know, I, I find if you're biopsying there, I think that men's number one fear, at least many of them will express this to me, is that this is going to result in like a penectomy. Mm-hmm. And so how do you allay those fears when you're going in for the biopsy, when you do believe it to be something malignant or pre-malignant? Mm. How do you frame that for them? Thankfully, and I mean, it does depend on sort of knowing your urology center and and what surgeries are available in your area. Um, Thankfully, nowadays, really only, you know, invasive squamous cell carcinoma would a penectomy even enter the the list of options for treatment. And even then, partial surgeries and other things are possible. It all depends on the tumor and how invasive and differentiated it is. But um, what I do try to tell people is, you know, if we catch it now and treat it earlier, we can use creams, we can use freezing, and right. we can maybe avoid a more serious surgery by not letting it get worse. Right. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I just, it's one of these things I feel like when I'm going in with the freezing needle, they kind of always yell out, you know, oh my God, does this mean you're going to have to cut it off? Yes. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, yeah. No. Very, 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 very unlikely. When you see something and it sort of creeps into your mind that it's probably malignant or pre-malignant, what are the clinical features that you think are most in keeping with that presentation? I mean, obviously, like red scaly plaques that mm-hmm. are firm, that are fixed, that don't move around, that are single, mm-hmm. you know, if it's a discrete area, as opposed to if there are, you know, several scaly plaques over the genital skin, that's more likely an inflammatory dermatosis mm-hmm. than a single plaque. Anything that has any sort of palpable infiltration or substance beneath it, I'm always concerned about. Anything that is persistently eroded or fissured, I worry about as well. Yeah. Um, I had a, a man with on the inside of his foreskin had just a persistently sort of pink, thin, fissured plaque, this one little crack that kept splitting, and that was a carcinoma in situ. Wow. Um, and so I'm very, uh, I will, again, try empiric treatment, but if that doesn't work, and it's one area that always is cracking, always splitting, always bleeding, I, I don't hesitate. I don't wait too long before I biopsy that. Okay. And would you routinely include, um, you know, examination of the inguinal lymph nodes if you're seeing something that you think is malignant or do you kind of, I mean, I think the, the catch for that would be pretty low. But... It, I've, thankfully, I've only ever got one. Uh, and the person had the lesion on the genitals itself was was quite obviously a squamous cell carcinoma. Okay. Um, and people that I'm just wondering, I still sort of reflexively do out of reflex, but I, yeah, thankfully haven't caught anything. And I think your yield would yeah. be quite low. Yeah. Yield is low. I mean, so is, so is it for, you know, melanoma regular exams, yeah. but we do it anyway. Mm. The other thing that I find I didn't get a lot of exposure to as a resident, and for some reason probably didn't come across in reading, is all of the benign things that you see frequently in male genital area. And mm-hmm. so, you know, um, 
the ones that come to mind for me are angiokeratoma of the scrotum. I, I remember the first time a gentleman showed me that when I was a staff, I was like, oh my God. And I dragged in one of the guys <laughs> and they were like, yeah, yeah, that's super normal. Like everybody has that, yeah. Carrie, like over 50. I was like, oh, oh good to know. Um, hmm. And similarly, other things like pearly penile papules and these little sort of cysts. And what's your list of common, um, or do you have a list of common benign things that you get referred to a lot of people that think it's something bad? I do. By far the most common things that I, benign lesions I see on the penis are um, angiofibromas, aka pearly penile papules, mm-hmm. angiokeratomas, and idiopathic uh, uh, scrotal calcinosis or calcified That's scrotal cysts. One. Yeah. Right. Those are probably less common than the other two, but but quite common. Um, I do see a couple people a year who unfortunately have been told that their pearly penile papules are genital warts or are excessively concerned that their pearly penile papules are genital warts and have not perhaps believed the other physicians that have seen them previously. So it's nice <laughs> to try to provide some reassurance okay. for that. Um, again, pearly penile papules should be symmetrical, monomorphic, usually along the corona. Mm-hmm. Um you know, if, if they're, you know, off the corona, asymmetrical, not very monomorphic, that can be a clue that they're condyloma. And that can honestly be hard to tell sometimes. There's sometimes when that can be tricky. Um, angiokeratoma, yes, are very, very common. And once you've seen them sometimes it, a couple of times, it, it does lock in. Yeah. But uh, yes. And they can bleed, which can frighten people too. Yes. Yeah. Often, often that's what they bring it to my attention. And like I said, the first time I saw it, I I don't think I had even ever really seen them. I probably read about it and then just kind of didn't Mm. commit it to memory. I will also say, I know we're talking about male genital skin disease, but those, both those conditions have counterparts uh, on the female anatomy. Yes. And I've seen a few female patients who have, uh, I believe they call them vulvar vestibular papules, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, the equivalent mm -hmm. of, and who've also been treated for genital warts. So it is important to have those normal variants, at least an awareness of them. A hundred percent. And, and we'll, um, you know, I'm going to try to cover the same type of topics with uh, Dr. Baxter when we do the vulvar Mm. or the the female genital series to kind of think about that same thing. Cause it is now this also actually thinking about from a, a vulvar perspective, when a woman has uh, lichen sclerosis, mm-hmm. you know, I remember when I was mm. a trainee, it was like, no, no, there's no increased risk of SCC. And I was like, no, 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 there is. You really have to treat it. And mm. so I have made it my practice to kind of follow those people, even if they're clinically stable, just once a year, I take a peek unless they mm-hmm. have, you know, if they have a really solid um, primary care provider who's able to feel confident with that, I, I will defer them but or refer them back but um do you do the same for men with lichen sclerosis or or i do the exact same thing yeah the thinking i at least in men is that if the inflammation is controlled that we hope that that obviates or eliminates the risk of carcinoma in situ or squamous cell carcinoma the largest study we have of men in lichen sclerosis is 300 men from london uk and in people that had their disease controlled, none of those men developed carcinoma in situ or SCC. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's it, the study was it's only for a, over a period study, of a few but... years. <laughs> yeah, but it's something. Yeah. So we like to, to hope to think that it's that active inflammation that's causing that precancerous risk or setting that environment up. We don't know that for sure. Even when someone has quiescent disease, um, I still make sure they're followed annually by someone, be that me or their primary care doctor. And do you tend to put those people similarly thinking, I guess, about the the um, parallel with vulvar, you know, oftentimes mm-hmm. we'll settle them with an ultrapotent steroid and then flip over to something like, um, tacrolimus. Do you do the same type of thing or do you just tend to use like low potency topical steroid less frequently over time? 
I will tend to do, and there's no uh, recipe book on this. People have their own, um, you know, patterns and things they do um, all over the world. I will try an ultra potent steroid for a month, try to get things under control, but remind people that that is not something we can just keep doing over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. I will then use, yes, anywhere from a lower to a medium potency steroid or a calcineurin inhibitor if they have access um, on a more long-term basis. Again, my real fixation point is to make sure the inflammation for the most part is always controlled. If someone constantly has active disease that's always red despite daily hydrocortisone or daily tacrolimus, I'm not happy with that. That's not control to me. So that's not an enduring solution. In men, uh, unlike in women, we do have the option of circumcision, which in men of a normal body habitus is always curative. Um, It is... A discussion yes <laughs> that is certainly had i have had a few but I, people that have had to go that route but uh it's always a challenging yeah. surgery i think for them to endure as adults yeah i will say that the men that i've and i can think of dozens now that i've i've witnessed through the process the vast majority of them are really happy they've had it done yeah. because they're more comfortable during sex. They don't have to yeah. constantly use creams. Yeah. Their skin isn't cracking and splitting all the time. They feel more mentally at peace that they don't have a, they, they probably don't have an increased risk of skin cancer anymore. Yeah. Um, it is a surgery. There are possible side effects, certainly, but by and large, it can be quite helpful for people. Absolutely. It's probably more the idea of the surgery rather than the actual Absolutely. Sort of outcome of the yes. surgery. Um, yes. Which is often the case. So, you know, is there anything that you think, I mean, this was obviously like a a high level. There's so many things you can think about in terms of uh, general dermatology. And, and, you know, it's not feasible to discuss them all in depth. But is there any big area that you think we haven't talked about or like some clinical pearl that you're just like, you really think the residents should hear it? I mean, your residents probably Hmm. hear it, but... What about the the non-U of T people? Interesting. Interesting question. I'm trying to think. I feel like things like trying to, again, remember to swab ulcerations, scrape scaly skin for tinea uh, are important important things to do. I think a focused physical exam can be helpful if you're thinking of lichen planus or psoriasis, looking in other places for those. I've caught lichen planus several times that way. Um, I think in terms of... What I really try when a clinical case walks into my clinic, I really try to have the residents be able to see it are the signs of lichen sclerosis because it can be subtle at first. Yeah. A lot of textbooks have that, you know, sort of end stage sclerotic white And yeah, nobody's going to miss that skin. type. Yeah. Yeah. And at that point, it's quite obvious. Earlier on, it can be more diffuse erythema inflammation. It can be hard to tell from Zunes balanitis sometimes. Some hints, though, are that Zunes balanitis tends not to be scarring. Mm-hmm. And so lichen sclerosis, people will start to have adhesions where the inner foreskin kind of sticks and adheres to the gland's penis. Yep. They'll have frenular damage. So their frenulum will become sclerotic and can be on can be totally destroyed, frankly. Mm-hmm. And those can be some of the earlier signs of lichen sclerosis before someone gets to the point where they, you know, have large white plaques, can't pull their foreskin back, that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. Those excellent points and stuff that's really important to think of. And I think the thing Mm. I always try to pass on to learners is like, don't forget to ask about the genital skin or look Mm. at the genital skin Mm -hmm. because it's, you know, just because it's not the most uh, necessarily comfortable thing for people to either show or people to ask about, I feel like, you know, we really need to be looking at that area. And and the more you look at, the more um, you can have that idea of what the spectrum of of quote unquote normal is. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay. Great. There is some variation there, of course. <laughs> um, I do. I offer it on all my full skin exams. For when someone's referred for whatever reason, I do ask. Yeah. The uptake is not huge, but I always at least ask about that. Yeah. I try to make it very casual, as you know, because I do ask it, you know, many times a day. Yeah. Populations that I'm a little, uh, shall I say, pushier in are HIV positive yes. and organ transplant or immunosuppressed populations because their risk of HPV mediated SCC is astronomically higher. 100%. So I. If an, if an average person off the street who is immunocompetent declines, I will leave it at that. Yeah. If someone who's immunocompromised declines, I at least make them aware of their increased risk. Yeah. And that someone should be looking at least once a year. Good point. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah. Well, listen, Phil, I wanted to thank you so much for joining me to have this riveting discussion because, you know, <laughs> I... I learned a few tidbits and uh, reminded myself of a few things. So, you know, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it as well. That was Dr. Phil Doiron. He's the director of the dermatology program at the University of Toronto and a staff dermatologist at Women's College Hospital. That's it for this episode of Dermalogs. Please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes. If you have questions for us, you can reach us on Twitter at CDN Dermatology or at CDA President. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, I'm Dr. Carrie Purdy. <laughs>